You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, we're joined by Michael Tully, Acting National Secretary for the Community and Public Sector Union, the good old CPSU. And uh, yesterday, reading the paper, I was uh, hit by the headline I've been looking to see, Consultancy Spend Alarms Union MPs. Now, Michael, you've uh, helped push through this uh, Parliamentary Joint Committee of Public Accounts and Audit Uh, And they've set up an inquiry into consultancy spending. This is a theme I've been pushing here on uh, 3CR's Renegade Economist for a number of years. Uh, What has led you to demand such an inquiry? The issue we're talking about here is the kind of growing or the already extravagant and ever-growing use of highly paid private consultants and contractors um, in the Commonwealth public sector. What's happening is that the uh, Turnbull government is sacking thousands of public servants. We've lost more than 14,000 jobs in the last four years and replacing them with contractors and consultants. Now, what struck me was that you've actually put some numbers here to uh, the cost blowouts in these lavish consultancy type fees. Uh, what were some of the, the highlights that, uh, that the CPSU is, is able to reveal? The really interesting thing here is that we've got a fairly good grasp on the rough size of the problem. Now, what I mean by that is we've been able to establish that there are literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year being spent on contractors and consultants to do work that should be getting done by public servants. Now, if we're talking $700 million, $800 million, $950 million a year that we know about, that's a substantial amount of money. But we also suspect that that's not the complete picture. There's just been a report by the Australian National Audit Office looking at how the government and how departments report on the use of contractors and consultants. And a key thing here is that where a contract's worth more than $80,000, then it has to be reported, made publicly available. What we've seen and what what we knew and what the ANAO has found is an enormous number of contracts that seem miraculously to come in just below the $80,000. So that information is not always reported, which leads us to suspect that the total cost is probably well beyond what we already know. So when the CPSU says that contractors and consultants cost more, we don't just mean a little bit more, we mean a lot more. So in the area of, say, IT, it's pretty well established now through work that we've done and a number of, uh, a number of the government's own reports um, over the last 10 years that ICT um, contractors are costing $100,000, $150,000 more per person per year. Now, that's crazy. In the Department of Defence, who, as of right up today, who have more contractors than they do actual staff, those contractors work out on average to cost 40% more than public, than public service staff. So what we're seeing here is an absolute classic false economy. The government says that to save money, they will sack public servants. And then when they sack those public servants, 
They need to get the work done, so they get the work done by consultants who they're paying 40% more for. Now, that's clearly a false economy, but it also speaks to the government's ideology. They don't really support the public service, and wherever they can, they're looking for opportunities to shovel work and shovel money to their uh, big business supporters. Wow, that's shocking. So the usual sort of uh, uh, loopholes are uh, utilised to avoid transparency measures. Uh, so what sort of steps do you, th- you hope to see through this inquiry? Mm. Look, we already know enough about the problem and there's more than enough evidence um, from the union and in fact from a number of inquiries going back over more than a decade. It's well established um, that the use of contractors and consultants cost the taxpayer more, produces lower quality outcomes, and undermines the basic functioning of the public service. That's well established. And on the available information we've got at the moment, there's clearly enough evidence to make the case that a cap needs to be put on that contract and the consultant expenditure. The government should wind that back heavily and then take the savings and reinvest them in permanent public service jobs. So that's the, the, that's, that's the first part of the puzzle. Where this inquiry um, is particularly important is that it will help us work out exactly what's, will give us a better picture about what's being spent um, in various of the very complicated categories that departments report against and give us some, uh, some more, inf- more information on which we can kind of calibrate exactly how big that cap should be how much of the say how the size of the savings that are possible, and the inquiry should also give us um, some further evidence and from that hopefully some recommendations um, about making the whole system much more transparent. Well, I'm looking forward to those outcomes uh, being followed through because this is a, a damaging trend, and I'm interested in what sort of companies are are. Uh, benefiting from this uh, lavish consultancy spend from governments of all levels? Well, look, the big players here are the uh, the big four, um, uh, the big four accounting and consulting firms, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, KPMG and PricewaterhouseCoopers, who between them, um, we know, um, have won about more than $3 billion worth of government work over the last five years. That's just the work that we know about. That's a staggering amount. Um, that's a staggering amount of money to be going to uh, to those big corporations. And the question we've kind of got to ask ourselves is, is when, is that well, when big corporations are writing government policy, and be clear, that's what they're doing here. They're writing government policy. They're telling the government what the big issues are and what the government should do about them. When corporations are writing government policy, we've got to we've got to wonder whether their recommendations are really in the interest of the public or in the interest of the big Edna town and the other clients that they represent. Mm, I was looking through your uh, federal budget, pre-budget submission, and there, listeners, you'll be able to find this in the show notes, but there is just a raft of examples of where these privatised services have uh, led to horrific outcomes. And, of course, one of the big ones uh, was the Centrelink uh, robo-debts type uh, fiasco of last year. Uh, do you want to run through some of uh, your, your findings as the head of of the, the union that uh, gets the feedback from the workers on the ground within uh, Department of Human Services, what were some of the, the pressures that staff were feeling there? 
the community is starting to get a pretty good sense that um, the endless cutting of public service jobs and spending ever more money on contractors and consultants is not producing a dividend. We've had census fail, robo debt, the uh, ongoing problems with the uh, uh, with the tax officers' uh, IT system, um, and lots of others. Lots of your listeners will be thinking as we're, uh, we'll, we'll be listening to this, um, and they'll be able to, they'll be able to pick their own uh, their own examples. For staff, particularly for Centrelink staff, who've seen 5,000 of their colleagues lose permanent jobs in the last few years and find themselves under incredible pressure um, and found themselves um, having to, uh, to to manage this awful robo-debt process that was foisted on them by the government, um, it's, it's just soul-destroying. People do this work because they want to do good work and help the community. Um, they want to do good quality work, and there's not enough of them um, to uh, uh, to meet the service standards of the community. The computer systems they're using are either uh, old or, in many cases, uh, in many cases, inadequate. And every time they identify a problem, the government seems to try and solve the problem by shoveling ever larger amounts of cash out the door to consultants and big corporations. I, I often say on the show that we've replaced a few workers uh, leaning on shovels uh, working on the roads with uh, executives and consultants on long Friday lunches. It just goes on and on and on, uh, the demonising of workers and the, uh, the this belief in the market system. And I suppose in terms of some of the big picture issues here, uh, we're... we're we're being asked to um, believe that the market delivers a better measure of efficiency rather than the democratic system. And uh, with all of these privatisations going on, it's it's hard for, uh, I don't know, I, I just wanted to point that out because I think that it's important that um, we recognise that markets don't always uh, provide the best outcomes and it seems that uh, when you look at this privatisation game, the government's only looking at one side of the economy. They're looking at their bottom line. They're not looking about the effects on their clients, on the consumers, on the voting public. How long till the public really wakes up to this? Michael Tull from the CPSU. Well, the community are awake to this, whether it's uh, robo-debt, the 55 million missed phone calls to Centrelink, the Centrelink wait time, census fail, problems with the tax office, etc. The community are, uh, are now awake to this issue. The cuts in the public service have been so deep that it's impossible for the government to now paper over um, the problems that they've caused. And with this sort of ballooning use of highly paid consultants um, in Commonwealth agencies isn't just a concern around um, uh, lack of transparency and the proper role um, of government, but it's also just simply an issue that the hundreds of millions of dollars um, could be much better spent restoring the quality of the basic services the public relies on, such as Medicare, Centrelink and, uh, uh, and the tax office. The, those big fat consultancy fees and the big profits that are going um, to, uh, uh, to those big companies, $3.1 billion worth of work just to, to just four firms in the last couple of years alone would be much better spent on bringing back staff numbers um, and rebuilding the capacity in critical agencies to be much better spent on restoring the quality of public services. Because mm, I don't know whether the public actually respects the wisdom of some of these uh, public uh, service workers who've been in the system for 10, 20 years, have seen governments uh, from left and right come and go. Uh, 
How many of those old hands are, are on your board, for example, who talk about, I mean, you must just pull a hair out at some of these consultancy-based advisory notes? One of the reasons, being very blunt, one of the reasons ministers like dealing with the consultants is because they can get the advice that the minister wants. Make no bones about it, that's what it's about. If you go to the public service, um, what the minister will often find is they get the advice, they get full and frank advice, and they'll get advice around a whole range of options and they won't always get the advice that they like. That their pet project or their pet ideology or their, uh, uh, their latest attack on uh, welfare recipients, um, when they ask the questions, um, the, public service, the public service comes back and points out all the problems and flaws um, with what it is that the minister's proposing. If you're the minister, in many cases, it's much more convenient to go to your friendly pet consultant and get exactly the information that you want. And then on the other side of things, when you do try and look into some of these uh, lavish funding arrangements, uh, the commercial inconfidence argument is uh, rolled out so that uh, I know here in one of uh, Melbourne's most prominent suburbs, in the inner city suburbs, uh, councillors can't access the uh, the contract with Serco, which uh, has the job of running Melbourne's parks and garden services. So uh, it's frustrating that we don't even know in many cases how much it's costing the public purse. This is part and parcel of the, uh, the outsourced contractor and, uh, and consultant world. It just buries information that the public are entitled to know and that in the past the public would have had access to as a matter of course. I mean, we, the public have a right to know exactly what's being spent, what it's getting spent on, why it's being spent and whether it's producing a result. One of the things that we see here all the time is commercial incompetence, um, and uh, other contractual uh, obligations being trotted out um, as uh, uh, being trotted out as reasons why the public can't know how their own money is getting spent. Now, clearly, that's an affront to our system of democracy, um, and uh, and really, you know, that's a that's a big problem from an accountability and trans transparency point of view. One of the things that the public service, which is not always great in this regard as well, but one of the things the public service. Um, is better at is the accountability and transparency and at the end of the day the public's got much more control um, over what the public service and the ministers uh, uh, and uh, and ministers do for work and money that's spent in-house. Once it's off to a consultant, once it's off to the contractor, it's hard to find out exactly what's going on. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist and this week we're talking with Michael Tull, the Acting National Secretary for the Community and Public Sector Union. And uh, we are concerned about uh, the consultancy spend that is uh, hitting all levels of government and it's driving. Uh, it's, it's part of this austerity push to really undermine the public sector, to undermine any sort of uh, second guessing of uh, this neoliberal privatised market system. And uh, Michael, what um, concerns me is this whole budget surplus fetish when we think about this framing of the whole argument that uh, public debt is bad but private debt is good. And here's uh, the Australian government with uh, some of the lowest debt levels in the world. 
Uh, I noticed in your budget submission that uh, the the tax take as a percentage of GDP in Australia was uh, well below OECD averages. And meanwhile, uh, our uh, household debt to GDP levels, uh, I think the third highest in the world. So... Uh, yeah, it's it's just a slash and burn on anyone who's questioning uh, the domain of uh, of this neoliberal agenda. There's a lot of space in Australia for us to rethink and recalibrate some of our really basic economic settings. You know, for the last decade or more, it's been rammed down our throat that uh, uh, that government debt is uh, is a terrible idea. Um, and that the budget surplus is the simple measure by which you assess whether a government is doing a good job or not. Now, both of those things are, uh, are, are, are crazy. Australia is in the place as a nation where we have the capacity for this government and for future governments to actually do a lot more to drive better standard of living through better wages, more jobs, and in particular more jobs in regional Australia, through using the government's ability to borrow money um, very, very cheaply and invest um, in infrastructure um, and skills and direct job creation where it's needed. One of the things that's abundantly clear about the Australian economy, in a particular um, uh, off the back of the mining boom, was that we wasted an opportunity to invest heavily in much better infrastructure for this country. And if we'd done that, well, we'd be in a much better place today. Unemployment would be, unemployment would be lower, growth would be higher, um, prosperity would be more evenly shared, and we would have been able to avoid what is frankly a crisis of unemployment in regional areas, and particularly amongst um, young people. Yeah, that's right. If uh, they don't have a window out uh, via uh, the internet and startup culture, then uh, it's just so difficult for people in regional rural areas to, to find employment because small business is just being uh, smacked over their head left, right and centre as uh, more and more uh, agglomeration of um, small and medium-sized businesses occurs. So uh, certainly uh, agree with the need to that Australia needs to recalibrate its economic outlook. We are one of the few nations that still has reasonable statistics and that's why reading your pre-budget submission on the ABS, seeing that 62% uh, of staff said that cutbacks had led to lower quality work, huge unpaid overtime, problems with uh, uh, being paid uh, that overtime, um, rush jobs left, right and centre according to various uh, budget periods. Uh, yeah, it's it's not um, best practice form of government, and this the scary thing is that Australia is still one of uh, the world's leading social democracies, and if we can't get it right here, uh, what sort of hope is there for other nations? We've just had twenty six years of uninterrupted economic growth, and in that period, we've had by the mining boom. Um, like you know, the biggest boom, one of, uh, the biggest boom in our nation's history, one of the biggest boom that's ever that's ever occurred um, on the uh, 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 on the face of the planet. And yet, 26 years later, we find that prosperity is unevenly shared, inequality is on the rise, 
for young people in regional Australia and the further away from a capital city you are, the worse the problem gets. Your job prospects are very, are very limited. Economic growth or the way that we measure economic growth and the way that we talk about economic growth quite clearly is not delivering a reasonable outcome for all Australians. And it should. And we can, and we can get ourselves in a situation where it does. But one of the things we'll have to do is jettison this kind of surplus fetish and actually understand, uh, build a better understanding of the community around um, public finances um, and around the government's ability to invest in infrastructure and skills and direct job creation. Those investments actually produce a return. It's not debt for the sake of debt. It's, it's good debt. It's smart debt. It's the sort of investments in your future that the government should have been making during the mining boom. We didn't, that, that, that's past us, but we're still in a very strong position in terms of public finances um, and our general economic settings. What the government's got the opportunity to do now is look at those particular, in particular, those regions of Australia where unemployment as you know, generally is over 10%, um, in some cases uh, higher than that, there's many regions in Australia where youth unemployment is 20% or worse. You know, 20% or worse, we're talking one in five young people who do not have a job and do not have a prospect of a job. Got to be, the government should be looking to those areas and making the investments in infrastructure and skills and in direct job creation in those areas. If we, if we make those investments, we'll build stronger economies, better societies, better communities in those places. And over time, that investment produces a return for those, uh, for those regions um, and, for the whole, and for the whole economy. That's the sort of approach that we should be taking. Has there been any work looking at uh, these multinational accounting companies, the Circos and the like, uh, and their donations? Uh, are they mounting up? Are they opening the doors uh, to these ministerial offices? That's a really good question, and uh, I can't really give you a good answer. There's some gaps in the way donations are reported in this country, and there's also some real gaps in how companies, these big four accounting companies and some of the other corporations actually do their business with government. So one of the things that we're starting to turn our attention to is scoping out research projects that will get us to the bottom of that question. Elsewhere though, we know pretty directly that uh, many other companies have trod a, a well-trodden path. They make donations to political party, and shortly afterwards, they win contracts. We've been seeing plenty of that, mostly on a smaller scale. It's now time to turn our attention to the really big end of town and see what's going on there. Well, Michael Tull from the CPSU, thanks so much for joining us here on 3CR's Renegade Economists. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. So, listeners, this a new level of insight into this non-stop world of privatisations, cutbacks in the public service leading to lavish private sector contracts. Pretty incredible that defence contractors are some 40% more costly than uh, full-time public service equivalents. And, uh, yeah, this is a growing, growing area with uh, 
the Australian National Audit Office doing this first report into procurement. We have to hope that they don't face any government uh, budget cutbacks in years to come. No doubt, uh, like Auditor General's offices around the nation, uh, they will also feel the squeeze of uh, budget cutbacks. And with procurement up 42% in just nine years from $33 billion to $47 billion. It's a growing area of concern when we constantly see that uh, government budgets are facing these cutbacks. How can departments be given less money but then more be spent on these areas, these privatised services? Delving into uh, the National Audit Office report, uh, 65% of contracts are under $80,000. As the CPSU's Michael Tull uh, alerted us, uh, a lot of contracts are just listed under the $80,000 threshold, some 65% of contracts in fact, uh, but they represent only $1.3 billion of the total procurement um, which is about 2.8%. But uh, I looked through the fine print and guess what? This only includes non-construction contracts. So the John Hollands of the world and so forth, they have a $9 million threshold before they have to uh, make the necessary declarations. And listeners, remember this is only at the Commonwealth level. So heaven knows what's happening at the state level or local council level as well. We need to ensure that uh, those levels of government are analysing just how extensive these cost blowouts are. Because uh, as I've often mentioned, it's, it's so annoying that uh, here we are in Victoria, supposedly Australia's most progressive state, and we have a Labor Premier, Daniel Andrews, who's slapped on a rate cap for local councils, concerned at the ever-increasing uh, level of council rates, but never looks at the expenditure side, and I dare say the cost of consultancy at local council level has also blown out and put extra pressure on those uh, revenue provisions. So just uh, geeking out on the numbers a little bit more, 13.7% uh, of the value of uh, these uh, uh, procurement contracts went to overseas companies, which was 4.7% uh, out of the total number of contracts. 57% of contracts were services. Now, usually I think that's the fire sector of finance, insurance and real estate, but they only took some 19.4% and probably within those services, uh, call centres were, were included. But uh, one of the big areas is vehicle hire. So uh, that was 26%. And uh, construction was only 11.6%. So I dare say more of that comes through at the state levels. But the big one in terms of the value of total procurement contracts is the Department of Defence, 69.1% of uh, procurement costs of privatisations uh, is, uh, is found within the Department of Defence. So, and quite a lot of that is within uh, vehicle hire. Someone's making a lot of money there through these defence contracts. I wonder whether 
some of these multinationals get around uh, the fact that uh, only 13.7% of the value of contracts went to overseas companies. Does that overseas company uh, category include locally established companies, i.e. KKR Australia, Halliburton Australia? Oh, there's just so much to look through, isn't there? And uh, for me, uh, when we look at the uh, macro picture here in early 2018, everything's about the Trump company tax cuts and what a good thing that's going to do, putting pressure here on uh, uh, the Australian Treasurer to also deliver company tax cuts. Most of them don't pay it anyway, do they? But uh, still... You can see that company tax cuts will be expanded in the near future, putting more pressure on government budgets. Will there be more public sector cutbacks? There'll be less questioning of uh, this supposed neoliberal agenda. With interest rates trapped at record lows, there's sure there's been some movement in the bond markets of recent, but uh, it seems like interest rates can't really be increased because it will hurt mortgage holders and with that uh, destroy the consumer demand government is trying to build up. So where will government get their revenue from? I bet you can guess what I'm thinking. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks so much for listening to 3CR's Renegade Economists. I'll be back next week.